Some of the greatest stories of military ingenuity and creativity come from World War II. Industrialized nations like the USA, Nazi Germany, and Japan created new kinds of aircraft, ships, and submarines. The Manhattan Project created the atomic bomb. The Nazis built rockets and jets in addition to their many experimental weapons and dabbling in the occult. The trench warfare of World War I began to be phased out, and a new era of fighter planes and long-range bombers began. But with the introduction of new weapons came the need for secrecy. Radar and the proliferation of aerial warfare meant that there were many more eyes in the sky, and moving or hiding weapons, ships, and troops had become much more difficult, so combatants began working on ways to use technology to their advantage. The culmination of these efforts allegedly took place in the Philadelphia Naval Shipyard in 1943 when a ship, the USS Eldridge, became invisible. But it's not just the possibility of a military cloaking device making a ship vanish that makes the story so bizarre. It's what happened when it reappeared. You're listening to Myths and Mysteries. A giant, hairy creature, part ape, part man. Indians call him Sasquatch. There are busts of King Tut that also show an elongated skull. Taunting the police, chiding them, daring them to capture him. And finally, he invented a name for himself, Jack the Ripper. Analysis of the grand features suggests that this animal was indeed at least 40 feet long. He could have easily eaten up a man. I expect that we'll keep looking um, from now on until we find him or find out what happened. According to legend, the USS Eldridge was docked in the Philadelphia Naval Shipyard in the summer of 1943. She was fitted with special equipment for the experiment. Large electrical generators were installed, and wires were run all around the ship. The plan was to use electromagnetism in accordance with Albert Einstein's unified field theory to bend light and render the Eldridge invisible. Finally, on October 28, 1943, the test occurred. There are differing opinions over whether October 28 was the only test, or if there had been a previous test during the summer with a follow-up test occurring on the 28th, but either way, the story of that experiment is remarkable. A greenish fog began to surround the Eldridge, and before long, it was completely enveloped. The ship became translucent until, eventually, there was a bright flash, and then she was gone. At that same moment, and without warning, the Eldridge suddenly appeared over 200 miles away, docked in Norfolk, Virginia, where she sat for either as briefly as 10 minutes, or as long as 4 hours, depending on who you believe, before vanishing again and reappearing back in Philadelphia. At first, the experiment seemed to have been a tremendous success, but no one was prepared for what they would find just moments later when the full horror of the scene would be discovered, and those in charge of the test realized what had happened to the crew of the USS Eldridge. It was a nightmarish scene. As the ship was dematerializing for its teleportation, its crew did as well. They discovered that during this process they could walk through its walls or stick their arms and legs through bulkheads and decks. But when the Eldridge suddenly rematerialized, 
Any crewman who was partway through a wall or a deck was instantly fused to the ship. One man was found with his hand embedded in the ship all the way up to his wrist. Men had their limbs fused inside bulkheads and walls with no way to remove them besides amputation. Some were completely buried inside the ship. Everywhere on board the Eldridge, men were suffering and screaming. Some were dying. And some had completely vanished somewhere during the teleportation, never to be seen again. The families of those crewmen lost during the experiment would be told that their loved ones had been lost at sea during the war. Even those crewmen who had survived and returned whole and uninjured couldn't escape unscathed. Everyone on board was experienced severe sickness and nausea, but that was nothing in comparison to what some of them would go through later. It's said that many Eldridge survivors would disappear, fading in and out of visibility without warning. Some would spontaneously combust or freeze in place. There's a newspaper story from 1943 which gives an account of a bar fight in Philadelphia involving sailors who vanished into thin air during the altercation. Despite the present-day popularity of the Philadelphia Experiment story, virtually everything we know about it traces back to two men, Carlos Miguel Allende and Alfred Bielek. Bielek's claims are so outlandish that we don't give them much credence. He appeared on the scene in the 80s after the release of the cult classic movie The Philadelphia Experiment. Bielek claims to be a former Eldridge crewman who, along with his brother, survived the experiment by jumping off the ship and teleporting into the future. He says that he was brainwashed shortly afterward and forgot all about it until 40 years later when he saw the movie and everything came back to him. But Carlos Allende is much more interesting, and without him, there would be no knowledge of the alleged Philadelphia experiment. Like most good sci-fi stories, it starts with aliens. Morris K. Jessup was a scientist and astronomer with a keen interest in UFOs. He wrote a book in the 1950s titled The Case for the UFO, and it was shortly after the book's release that, in 1955, he began receiving letters from Carlos Miguel Allende. Tucked inside the man's ramblings about UFOs, space travel, and spaceship propulsion systems, there was a mention of an experiment in 1943 that had made a ship turn invisible and teleport at great cost to its crew who were physically harmed or killed in grotesque ways during the experiment. Allende claimed to have witnessed the experiment from the deck of a neighboring ship, and included his naval seaman's ID number as proof. Jessup knew the ramblings of a lunatic when he saw them, and he dismissed Allende's letters without a second thought. But that was only the beginning. Allende would not allow himself to be swept aside so easily. Two years later, in 1957, Jessup was contacted by the Office of Naval Research in Washington, D.C., they had received a manila envelope marked Happy Easter with a copy of Jessup's book The Case for the UFO inside. All throughout the book, however, were notes written in three different colors of ink, as if written by three different individuals, who seemed to be using the book to send messages to each other in an early iteration of a modern-day chat room. These individuals referred to themselves as gypsies 
and went by the pseudonyms Mr. A, Mr. B, and Jemmy. Basically, they went through Jessup's book and gave their thoughts on the points that he made, agreeing or disagreeing, and seemingly having a good laugh over the condition of mankind's thoughts on space travel. That's because these beings, according to their writing, were aliens. The Office of Naval Research didn't know what to make of the whole thing, so they called in Jessup to see if he could shed some light on it. Almost immediately, Jessup recognized some of the handwriting. A large portion of it matched the letters he'd received two years prior from Carlos Allende, and sure enough, in the notations written by alleged aliens in the margins of his book, there was another mention of the Philadelphia Experiment. Jessup, along with others who have seen the book since then, concluded that the notations were all written by one person using three different pens. For some reason, the Office of Naval Research had 100 copies printed of the book with all the notations included, which is now known as the Vero Edition, because it was printed by the Vero Manufacturing Company. The mysterious Carlos Allende remained in the shadows for years. Attempts to locate him failed when he could not be found at any of the return addresses he used on his letters and packages. Meanwhile, Morris Jessup began digging into Allende's claims. He researched the Philadelphia experiment, even as he was writing more books about UFOs. His books were not well received, however, and he became something of a pariah in the scientific community. Finally, on April 30th, 1959, he made plans to meet a colleague named Manson Valentine for dinner, claiming he'd made a breakthrough at last in his Philadelphia experiment research. However, tragedy struck, and he never made it to his dinner appointment. He was found in his car, with the engine running and a hose inserted from the exhaust into a rear window. He died shortly afterward from the carbon monoxide he'd inhaled. While Jessup's family members have stated that he was depressed about his divorce and the sales of his books, the timing of his suicide is extremely suspicious. A decade after Jessup's death, Allende appeared in Tucson, Arizona at the Aerial Phenomena Research Organization, where he confessed to writing the letters and the book notations, although he would later recant this confession. Paranormal researcher and author Robert Gorman would later uncover Carlos Allende's true identity years later, almost by sheer luck. Many of Allende's letters had been postmarked from New Kensington, Pennsylvania, where Gorman lived. While asking around, he mentioned Allende to a family friend whose last name was Allen. The man told Gorman that Carlos Miguel Allende was actually his son, Carl Meredith Allen, and gave Gorman a box full of papers and letters that Carl Allen had written. The handwriting and the crazy rambling writing style were the same. The final nail in the coffin came when Gorman dug through the box's contents and found the Siemens ID papers for Carl Allen. The ID number was a match to the one in the Allende letters. After all these years, the elusive Carlos Allende had finally been unmasked. There are a few different versions of the Philadelphia Experiment story, and naturally there are multiple theories about its true origins. Did it really happen? Or was it just the ramblings of a crazy person who pretended to be three different aliens? Or was it a case of a mistaken identity? One theory is that the process of degaussing, or running current through a ship's hull to make it invisible to magnetic minds, was mistaken for a secret invisibility test. 
All these theories and more have been debated for decades and will probably continue to be for many more. One last fact about this story. In 1999, 15 crewmen from the USS Eldridge all got together for the first time to talk about their time on board the ship. They stated that the Eldridge was never even in Philadelphia, and when asked about the book that inspired the Philadelphia Experiment film, one of them said, quote, The only part of the book I think is true is the part about the crew being a little crazy. This one has been really fun, Zach. We have all of the elements of a really fun story in the making, from government conspiracy to aliens. And my question to you is this. Out of all the topics that we've done and the topics that we have yet to do, could there be another topic where the source information comes from a sketchier source? (laughs) I don't think so. Uh, The two guys that are the principal uh, origins of the story, you know, Carlos Miguel Allende, who sounds like some kind of awesome mustachioed spy, and he turns out to be um, a little guy in Pennsylvania who was probably on the autism spectrum and liked to write in other people's books. And then you have this Albelic guy who comes along decades later but says, my brother and I jumped off the ship, but oh, we went by different names back then. And when we jumped off the ship, we teleported into 2137, and we saw the results of World War III, and then we worked on the Montauk Project and all this stuff. And <laughs> it's, it's, I have no idea what to make of some of it. It's just so bizarre that I, I just don't know. Not only is this a story where the the source material is very strange, but this is probably also one of the stories wherein the most people have just jumped on board to try and get involved any way possible throughout the years. Because some of these things have come about 20, 30, 40 years after all of it was alleged, you know, allegedly happened. And uh, we still got guys coming up years later, making it up and, and, and getting themselves involved. Yeah, and we've seen that from some of the principal characters that um, once it went from little-known conspiracy theory to pop culture hit with the film and the books and stuff, people tried to jump on board and just kind of get a piece of it. In fact, uh, Carlos Allende, to sort of give a timeline of Allende, um, in 55 he writes the letters to Dr. Jessup, and then... Jessup ignores him. In 57, um, Jessup gets the call from the ONR that they've received this book that has all the crazy handwriting from the three aliens in it that turns out to just be written by Allende. Then, you know, there's more back and forth. Allende, after the death of Jessup, shows up uh, in Arizona um, and says... Yeah, I'm Carl Allen. I made up all of this stuff in the book. It was all <laughs> fake. Then the book comes out uh, about the experiment, and it becomes a smash hit and starts making money. And he comes, Allende comes back out again and says, "Oh no, uh, I didn't make it up. No, it's all real. I know all about it." And <laughs> seriously, guys, really, right? And then you know, of course, then Robert Gorman eventually tracks him down. And Carlos Miguel Allende is Carl Meredith Allen, a guy who has big ideas and big brains but can't write. 
it almost sounds like, you know, he was willing to, to take his kind of notoriety and, and be noticed by any means necessary from trying to be famous by being somebody who was in on this top secret information. And when nothing came about, like it was, he was willing to be slandered to come in and admit that he had made it all up and, and he had, you know, brought up false testimony to try and get some recognition. And then obviously tries again later by recanting his recant. The crazy thing about this whole story is that um, Carl Allen makes up. We we you know we think I think that he he made it up and he um, is writing these letters and he's getting involved and he's this shadowy underworld figure for decades. I mean decades and decades. People are trying to find him and can't find him and he's inserting himself into this story and it's really only because of him that the story even is in existence. And in the end, he gets nothing out of it. You know, it, it's made into movies and books are written about it and it's debated, you know, it's 2017 we're talking about it in a podcast. And Carl Allen, yeah. who really is the origin of this whole story, gets nothing from it. And Bielik, who comes in years and years later after a Hollywood movie has been made and says, oh yeah, I was brainwashed, I remember it, let me tell you about my crazy time travel story where years and years in the future they have flat television screens... He's he's making money. Yeah. Oh, he's the best. He's all like, you know, I've been to the future and I came back and I'm selling you these CD sets of my story for 30 bucks, but it's really to help you. I'm a hero back from the future come to tell you that the ocean levels rise and World War Three happens and I'm giving you an early warning. And he, you know... Don't make the mistakes that I saw. Right, right. He sets himself up as this time-traveling hero and it's just, it's bananas. You know what that makes me think of? Do you remember those commercials from probably when we were way younger? The Pizza Hut commercials with the kid, I have been to the edge and back. Join me. Join me. Oh, I, yeah, I, yeah, that's I what love a, those commercials. That's, that's Al Bielik. He's the, I have been to the edge and back, who will join me yeah, guy. He's just a Pizza Hut commercial selling CDs for 30 bucks on his website. Yep, who has an hour and 37 minute documentary. So now that we've talked a little bit about Allende and Bielik, let's talk a little bit about Dr. Morris Jessup. Um, because it's his book that he writes about UFOs that kickstarts this whole long process. Um, I think for me, the, the big question in this is his supposed suicide. And to me, the, the suicide of Dr. Morris K. Jessup in this story is sort of equal to Jack Ruby killing Lee Harvey Oswald in the JFK story. Where these crazy events are happening, but then there's this one death that happens, and everybody goes, that's a cover-up. And I think the same thing happens here, where he says, he calls Dr. Manson Valentine, who's an awesome dude, by the way. We did some background on him today, and in addition to having a name that sounds like a screamo band, he uh, (laughs) actually has some really cool credentials and stuff that he did. Um, but he calls Manson Valentine and he's like, I've made a breakthrough in my research with the Philadelphia experiment. Let's have dinner. I want to tell you all about it. And then instead of showing up at dinner, he kills himself by carbon monoxide inhalation in his car. Yeah. And you're right. That is, that is the big detail that everybody really latches on to. Um, and I heard today that in, in true detail of this guy who was very interesting and, and spent his life covering really interesting topics, Apparently he had gotten very into like the psychic phenomena before he had died and uh and leaving his suicide note he actually requested that like 
All right, well, I'm, I'm going to be gone now, but once I'm dead, set up a seance and try to contact me on the other side, but do it on the radio so that everybody can hear and we can prove that there's life after death. I don't know of any record of that happening, so I'm going to guess that it didn't go down quite the way he thought it was going to. Yeah, no, they uh, they did not respect his wishes in that, so unfortunately that was that was never attempted. So, here's the thing. The suicide is really suspicious, and I admit, like, when I heard that part of the story, I sat up straight in my chair and I was like, oh man, this is important, you know? Like, this suicide right. could sort of decide the whole story one way or the other for me. And here's the thing. I watched a History Channel documentary, and among other research, and they interviewed his daughter. And she said that when she got the phone call that her father was dead, they just told her that he was dead. And her first words were, how did he do it? Hmm. And that spoke volumes to me that she was so just already on board with, well, he killed himself, right? Because he's been depressed and suicidal and he finally went through with it, right? You know, like that was her attitude. It wasn't that, you know, oh, they finally got him or, you know, oh, what happened? This is out of the blue. She goes, how did he do it? And that to me just, she knew that he was depressed and she knew that this was a possibility. So that to me makes the suicide seem a little bit more legitimate, I think. How about you? Yeah, and the details in addition to what his daughter had to say, there's a clear timeline where other people who knew him, spoke with him, um, knew that he was depressed for a number of different reasons. His uh, his wife had left him, if I remember correctly. His, his kids were grown and gone. His books weren't selling. It, that was a big thing that I was just going to touch on, is that the books that he spent his life writing and was was trying so hard to get the public on board with it was very important to him. It was something that wasn't just, it wasn't science fiction to him. It was something that he was writing about because he thought it was important and he thought that he was touching on something revolutionary and his books were not well received. So when your life's work is, is being cast away and your wife has left you for that life's work, um, you know, it starts to paint a picture that makes this thing seem a little more feasible. Agreed. Another big, uh, I guess, big flashing red light for me in this story is not really the invisibility thing, because we've got stealth technology. I think invisibility and bending light is something that's not that far-fetched. But the teleportation of the Eldridge, docked in Philly, mm-hmm. it, it vanishes in the green cloud, it shows up in Norfolk, and it sits there for a while, and then it disappears and shows up right back where it was. That, to me, is really 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 far-fetched um because if you fast forward now 70 plus years in the future in university laboratories we're able to teleport single photons by hitting them with lasers that have been reflected off a lot of mirrors and stuff i don't know what that does but that's the process according to what i saw on tv so (laughs) to say that you know 70 plus years ago by accident we teleported a ship there and back again, and now with way more advanced technology, we can only teleport single photons. That to me just says like, this is made up. This never happened. Yeah, let me break this down just for for a second for our listeners. These are there are some scientific arguments that can be made by people at a higher pay grade than us. But there's a few things that are really kind of more commonsensical to me that stood out 
in regard to what you were just talking about. Number one is that the record of the machinery and the details of what went on on the ship that made this this experiment possible were, and I quote, I see coils everywhere, machinery, and generators. And coils, machinery, and generators do not just accidentally teleport people. And actually, that goes right along with some things that might be used in regard to degaussing, which we talked about earlier, making uh, a ship disappear in regard to like mines, like using magnetism, making invisible yeah. for like mines to go off and stuff. That's almost the exact equipment that's used for degaussing. So we're like, okay, that makes sense that that would be there. However, when in all of the reports we're getting generators and coils, and granted machinery could go a little farther than that, but generators and coils don't make teleportation. Also, another big thing going from that is if they did manage to accidentally teleport somewhere, I have a strong, um, I guess, issue with the fact that this giant ship goes from a port there in Philadelphia, which the logs don't show it was ever in Philadelphia, and it shows up in another harbor in Norfolk, right there in the water up against the pier. And I'm like, what are the chances that if they were to accidentally teleport this ship, that it's going to go from one shipyard into another? You know what I mean? That seems almost infinitely small, those chances. Like... I feel like it'd be far more likely to, like, even if it's dropped into another harbor, like, drop on top of another ship that's already docked there, or <laughs> be buried underground, or, like you like you had joked before we started recording, you know, on the 62nd floor of the Empire State Building, or something, you know, like, just some random <laughs> place. The odds of accidentally teleporting from one available dock to another 200 miles away and then back, like, the... I'm no math whiz, but the chances literally seem to be, like, infinitesimally small. Exactly. And that leads me back into something you touched on briefly, so not to beat a dead horse, but if the technology existed, if it was ever in any way remotely feasible, there has never been a time in human history where a government has said, we've got this major advancement within our grasp, we've accidentally done it, but you know what? It's not a good idea. It's not safe for the public, and we could see this ending horrible and badly, so we're going to shelf this. Uh, yeah, we fused a couple guys to the ship, so we're just going to uh, scrap this technology that could easily win the war for us. Yeah, it would still be here. It, the leaps and bounds that we've made in from cars, we've seen the rise of computers, now tablets, and this crazy technology that we have. If there was any bit of information out there that would help them to continue to do this they would have poured millions and millions of dollars into it until uh today we wouldn't be driving cars anymore we would be teleporting in my personal opinion absolutely 100 percent agree one other thing that i thought was really interesting was something that i didn't notice until i started googling some images of the area and that is why would they run a top secret experiment in the Philadelphia Naval Shipyard. Now, it wouldn't have been the case in 1943, but literally I-95 runs right along the Naval Shipyard. This place, even in 1943, was readily available for photographs, uh, easily accessible. You know, you could see it, see things from a distance. And uh, this will shock our listeners, but the USS Eldridge was a large vessel and uh, would have been easy, easy <laughs> to see from a, a ways away. And so we have these accounts 
and we have this one person, Carlos Allende or Carl Allen, who says, yeah, I was, uh, I was right next door on another ship when I saw it happen. And I'm having a really hard time believing not only his story, but that the Navy or the government would run a top-secret experiment that involved invisibility, because we know, we'll admit that they weren't trying to teleport on purpose. They're going to do that in plain sight of everybody. Yeah, it, it's... The logic isn't consistent to say that, you know, we did this top-secret test right out in full view of everyone, but then we murdered this journalist who was trying to expose it. And brainwashed like everybody it, that was on board. Right. It's just, logically, that's a big fail for me. It made me laugh a little bit, though, as I was looking, that, like, I guess uh, doing things in plain sight, you know, the closer we are to danger, the farther we are from harm kind of uh, philosophy, but right out in plain sight, I guess maybe they thought nobody would be paying attention. Yeah. Oh, ignore the green cloud. It's perfectly normal. Yep. So before we go, um, this isn't totally related to this story, but I did some research on Manson Valentine because I was like, who is this dude with the awesome name that uh, Dr. Jessup was going to meet to discuss the story? And Manson Valentine is a scientist, or was, a scientist at the University of Miami. He was big into the Bermuda Triangle and did a lot of study of that. And I believe that Jessup was also interested in that that phenomena. But um, Manson Valentine, actually, while researching the Bermuda Triangle, would go on to discover the Bimini Road in 1968, which we talked about in the Bermuda Triangle episode. It's a bunch of stones at the bottom of the sea that seem to form a road that some people think was an entrance to Atlantis. Um, he did all this cool stuff. He's finding the Bimini Road. And then he ends up actually dying of a spider bite. Which, I mean, if there's anything more, like, Indiana Jonesy than dying of a spider bite. You know, like, that was just, he was just <laughs> a remarkable guy. With, right, remarkable guy with a remarkable name, and I just thought I would point that out. Super interesting guy, and Indiana Jones was what I was thinking of as well. That's it for this episode of Myths and Mysteries. Thanks for listening, and staying with us as our show has grown. We've been getting a lot of feedback, episode recommendations, and tips on how we can continue to make our show better lately. We'd love to hear from you, too, and you can contact us anytime to give us your input or favorite cat gifts at mythsandmysteriespod.com. You can also find us on Twitter or Facebook at MythsPodcast. Thanks to Scott in North Carolina for your recent recommendation. If you have two minutes, you could really help us by leaving us a review on iTunes or on your podcast app. It'll help us climb the charts and be seen by more people. Make sure to subscribe and let your friends know we'll be back in two more weeks to start an undertaking we are very excited about. We'll be kicking off a summer of serial killers, where once a month we'll dive into some of the craziest and most interesting serial killers out there. We'll give you more details then, and as always, see you next time.